It is amazingly fun to be a grandfather. And for those of you who share it with me, countless people told me, when you become a grandfather, it'll change your life. And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they're absolutely right. And um, there was something about holding this little boy, knowing that he is, in a sense, mine, but I didn't have to get up with him in the middle of the night. It's just <laughs> glorious. So I am very happy to be in that status now. If you would, turn to Psalm 67. Uh, Just a seven-verse psalm here, and we're going to look at the whole thing. Psalm 67, beginning with verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray again. Father, we come to you with a sense of of total dependence and, and know that apart from you, we can do nothing of eternal significance. Father, we are not capable of changing ourselves at all, but you can. And I praise you that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words lives in everyone who follows Jesus and is present in this place. And we pray that your spirit would take your word and use it among your people, that you would draw sinners to yourself and that you would change us all to be more like Jesus and more useful to him. Father, we really can't do anything unless you come and use your word in this way. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. With those words, Aaron and his descendants, who were the priests, would bless the people of Israel. It was one of the marks of their special relationship with God. God had chosen Israel to be his people. They were his people. He was their God. And he undertook to protect them and to provide for them. He, he in fact, displaced other nations and gave them lands and fields and houses and cities that they had not built. God had been amazingly kind and generous with his people. And they were blessed, therefore, in his name as a recognition it all came from him. This is, in fact, a reflection of what they understood about God and his ways with us. They understood that God didn't just create the world and wind it up like a clock and set it down and walk away, that God is still very, very active in the world that he made. He's still very active with his people. And that God is gracious and kind, both in general to all humanity and in a special way to those who are his own people. This blessing, in fact, was a symbol of the fact that they had a blessed existence. They were the most special people on earth. Now, but here's the danger of being God's chosen people, and here's the danger of being the recipients of incredible blessing. The danger is that you come to think that that's just the way it ought to be. In fact, you could even come to think that you actually deserve it. And you think that God blessing you is the end of the story, that you're the point of what God is up to in the world. And unfortunately, because we are intrinsically self-centered people, 
That's the way our thoughts tend quite naturally. But this psalm, in fact, is a reflection on the blessing that Abraham and his descendants were to to pronounce over Israel. And it asks the question, basically, why has God blessed his people? What's he up to in being so good to them? Are they the point, or is God after some further goal? So I want us to look at this psalm. I want us to look at it in light of the overall narrative of Scripture and also in light of what it says itself and ask us, what does it teach us? What does it teach us about who God is and how he relates to us? What does it teach us about what God is up to in the world and what difference should that make in the way that we live? So first of all, let's look at what the ironic blessing teaches us. The first thing we see here is clearly a conviction reflected in this whole thing that God is sovereign and active in the world. So everything was made by him. Everything happens at his command. And to quote from the New Testament, every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is the one who provides directly every good thing that we enjoy. But if that's true of God, that he is gracious, generous, and active in the world, what's true of us is that we are actually sinners who don't deserve any of it. It's not God to be just and give us what we're due. It's God be gracious to us. God is not giving us what we've earned. He's expressing grace toward us when he pours out blessing on us. See, we have no right to anything. Now, most of us in this room are probably Americans. We've grown up knowing the Declaration of Independence. We've been told our whole lives, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that may be true in the political realm, but that is most certainly not true in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, in our sin, we forfeited the right to everything except for judgment. What we have a right to is hell. Everything beyond that is grace. When we rebelled against God, he would have been totally justified in either wiping us out or just leaving us to our own devices and then condemning us to hell. The fact that he continues to do good things to us while we are, in fact, snubbing our noses at him is a sign of grace. Now, our culture inclines us toward a spirit of entitlement, toward a spirit of thinking, I deserve a lot of stuff. I not only deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I deserve health, I deserve affluence, I deserve safety and security, I deserve comfort and convenience, and we get miffed if we don't get those things, and when we do get those things, we just think, oh, this is just what I deserve. In fact, I mean, a lot of advertising is based on you deserve it. Well, biblically speaking, you deserve hell, and that's it. Everything else is an expression of grace. So we're completely dependent on God. We're dependent on God for material blessings. We're dependent on God for the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the jobs we enjoy, the families that surround us. It's not that we earn them ourselves, and we need to beware of of the attitude that was reflected in a prayer of that great American cultural icon, Bart Simpson, a couple of decades ago, who in a prayer before a meal said, we bought this food with our own money, so thanks for nothing, God. Amen. 
Um, that is, in fact, whether, it's, whether we say it, the attitude all too often that's there. But we're dependent on God for every material blessing we have. We're dependent on God for our preservation, both physical and spiritual. We're dependent on God for protection. Uh, let me add here that safety is an illusion. There is no safe place. As a matter of fact, we live in, in a, a world that is fraught with dangers, and God is protecting us at every moment in ways we do not see and probably won't see until we get to heaven. But it's interesting, having lived most of my adult life in Central Asia, actually having lived most of my adult life in countries the State Department says you should never visit, the place I have come the closest to getting killed was in a car accident in rural Virginia. There's, there, there's, there's no such thing as safety, but God is protecting us. And by the way, he's not obligated to. There's no promise anywhere in the Bible that God will protect us physically as believers. We're dependent on God for all these things. They all come from God alone. And we're completely dependent on grace because none of it's deserved and none of it's earned. So I want you to stop for just a moment now and think about the consequences of a biblical understanding of God's providence, literally God's providing all of these things. That means everything you have comes from him. That also means, perhaps even more radically, everything you have is his. You own nothing. He owns all of it. He has loaned you all the things that you enjoy, but they remain his property, and you are stewards of that property. And you and I deserve none of it. So, I mean, let me just ask, does your prayer life reflect that? Does your prayer life reflect the, the, the reality, biblically speaking, that you are dependent on God for all the good things, even the mundane, ordinary things that you enjoy? Do you, as Jesus taught us, pray, give us today our daily bread? See, people who are poorer than we are, in more desperate straits than we are, also often are spiritually healthier than we are because they recognize that daily dependence on the provision of God. And they pray that way. And then do you turn around and give thanks to God every day for the basics? Are you thankful to God for the fact that unlike many in the world, you have enough food to eat today? Are you grateful to God for the fact that when it's freezing cold outside, you have heat in your house? These are all gifts from the hands of God, and it should produce a prayer life both of dependence and of thanksgiving, even for the mundane things. Do a mental inventory. What are the things you treasure the most? So picture those things and then tell yourself one at a time, this came to me from the good hand of God. He still owns it completely. And I mean, this could be your family. This could be your job. This could be some possession. This could be your health. It could be anything like that. But recognize it came from God. He still owns it completely. And I don't actually deserve it. So that's sort of the, the, the foundation of it all. That it's God who blesses us that it's God who causes the earth to yield its increase, uh, that it's God who has poured out good things on us. But then the psalm tells us that the point of all this was not ultimately us, that the purpose of God's undeserved blessings goes beyond us. And this is where the psalm gets really radical. He says, may God do all these things that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. So now God is gracious to us because God is gracious. He is gracious to us because he loves us. And of course, the reason God loves us is that he loves us. 
It's not because of anything in us, it's because of who he is. He is a loving and gracious God who is outrageously, extravagantly generous at all times to all people. But here's the point. The people of God are not the terminal point of his gracious purposes. So even here in the Old Testament, even here where God's focus is primarily on one people, the people of Israel, God's purpose and grace is global. He blessed them in order that salvation might reach all peoples and that all peoples might give him the glory that is due his name. See, this is a major theme of Scripture. This is one of those things that binds the Bible together. It's not just an afterthought that Jesus tacked on at the end of his ministry. He wasn't getting ready to ascend into heaven. He thought, oh yeah, I forgot. I, I, I almost didn't mention this, but if you think about it, if you get around to it, if it's convenient, you might want to think about telling somebody else about this. That wasn't what it is. When Jesus gives the Great Commission at the end of his life, right before he ascends into heaven, he is simply reflecting a theme that literally can be found from Genesis to Revelation. God is on a mission in human history. Human history is going somewhere, and God's mission is the key to understanding that history. Human history is not primarily about politics or economics. Human history is primarily about what God is doing. And this, and this theme is actually even a key to understanding the Bible itself. God's mission is to display his glory, that's primary, by redeeming a people to himself, that's the means, through Jesus Christ, he is the agent, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that's the scope, with the final result of a global cosmic redemption of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell, in which God will dwell with his people forever. Let me say that again. God's mission is to display his glory, that's primary, by redeeming a people to himself, that's the means by which he's going to glorify himself, through Jesus Christ, he's the agent through whom God has accomplished this, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that's the scope, with the final result of making all things new in the new heavens and the new earth where he dwells with his people forever. And this is seen from the start of the Old Testament to the finish, Old Testament to the finish of the new. It's seen in God's promise to Abraham. When God promised to bless Abraham, he ends it by saying, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He repeated that promise to Abraham, only this time he said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He repeated the promise again to Isaac, and again to Jacob, one time using families, one time using nations. The idea being, what I'm doing for you is not just for you. I literally intend for this to go to the entire world. We see it in the prophets. Places like Habakkuk 2.14, where God promises the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We see it in Isaiah 49.6, in which God is speaking to the Messiah and he says to his servant, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel whom I have kept. I will also make you a light to the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The entire book of Jonah is about this theme. And if you ever thought Jonah was about the big fish, it's not. Big fish is, is just one actor. The, the real theme of that book is that God wishes to bless a people who aren't Israel, who in fact are Israel's enemies. And God not only insists that Jonah the prophet go along with it, he insists that Jonah share his attitude about it. 
that God's intentions go beyond those who are now God's people to those who are not. It's seen in the book of Psalms all over the place. Think about it, Psalm 100, one of the first things we taught our our kids to memorize when they were very little. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the people already know him? No. It's shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Psalm 117, shortest chapter in the Bible. If you want to memorize an entire chapter of the Bible and only take about 10 minutes to do it, this is your place. But praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the loving kindness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord who? All you nations, all you peoples. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare his glory among the nations. And then this psalm here as well. There's there's places all over the Old Testament, in the law, in the prophets, and in the writings, where it's clear that even though God has focused on Israel, on one people, his intention is all the peoples of the earth. God has never been content just with one little people group. He wants them all. And then in the New Testament, this theme is seen in full bloom. You know, the Great Commission was actually given over and over again in the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. If you read the Gospels and and Acts carefully, you realize it's said in different ways, also said at different points during that, as though Jesus wanted to make sure his followers got the point. Uh, What I'm leaving you here to do is be missionaries. What I'm leaving you here to do is to take the good news of this to all the peoples of the earth. The book of Acts is, in fact, a missions history book. Uh, The letters of the New Testament are, in fact, missionary literature. They were part of the missionary plan, the missionary strategy of the apostles who were planting churches and then making sure that those churches were healthy and would continue the work of the gospel even beyond them. In the book of Revelation, we have a stunning statement in Revelation 5 that the very purpose of the atoning work of Jesus was global in scope. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, the angels sang to Jesus, for you were slain, and with your blood you purchased, past tense, it's done, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then to show us that God's purposes get fulfilled, skip two chapters on to chapter 7, and John sees a, a, a vision in which there is a multitude standing before the throne whom no one can number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's what God has been up to from the start, and that's where we're going to end up at the end of the book. So looking back over this psalm then, in light of all of that, what we see then is a structure that points us inevitably toward God's gracious provision being for the purpose that blessing goes to the nation. It begins with a statement of God's purpose and blessing his people, which is a global knowledge of God, a global application of his saving power. You then have a summons, actually a double summons, to all peoples to praise God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, that double summons is repeated two verses on. That's really the centerpiece of it all, because what we're up to is, in fact, globally recruiting for the choir of heaven. That's what we're doing. I mean, we're going to not have to do the rest of what we have to do anymore, but we're going to spend eternity worshiping and praising God. And so we're recruiting for the choir for others to join us in giving God the glory that's due his name. 
There's then a statement of God's universal sovereignty and justice and providential care. Let the nations be glad, the nations, all the peoples be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on earth. A a repetition then of the summons to praise. And then finally, a restatement of God's purpose in blessing his people. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's what this psalm is doing, is letting us know that the blessings we have come from God. The reason God has blessed us is so that through us, all the peoples of the earth might know him with the final result that God receives the praise and honor and glory from every language and every people that are due his name. And that principle still holds true. God blesses his people in grace. It's grace, not something we've earned. God never intended that blessing to stop with us. He still has all peoples in his sight. So let me ask you some questions. Especially now as we are moving into Thanksgiving week, do you recognize the providence of God in everything? Do you recognize that God's hand is at work in every detail of your life and that God's hand is the giver of every good gift you've had? Or, like the culture around you, have you become, for all intents and purposes, a deist? Are you basically functioning as though, yeah, you know God's there, and you know he's going to save you, but you just sort of go through this life on your own, and everything you have, you accomplished by your own effort and your, your own deserving. Do, do you go to God daily to ask for your daily bread? When something comes up, when you have a need, what's your first instinct? Is your first instinct reliance on yourself, or is your first instinct to turn to him immediately and instinctively for help? And do you thank him daily for all of your basic provisions as well as for his special gifts? So do you not just thank him when something really extraordinary happens, but do you spend time daily in gratitude before God for the fact that you've got what you need? As a matter of fact, you've got a lot more than what you need. And you should be astonished and amazed before God for the simple fact that you turn on the tap and clean water comes out. That you flip the switch and the electricity works. Because I've lived much of my life in places where neither one of those could be taken for granted. That's all a gift from God. And not only do you recognize the providence of God in everything, do you recognize the ownership of God over everything? Or do you actually think your stuff's your own? Now, I think in in church circles, we have tended to think of this word stewardship. It's a word we throw around a lot. But as I grew up, I I sort of understood that meant that I owned 90% and God owns 10%. And so, you know, I think this was a good exercise, but as a child, I was required to tithe my allowance, which back in the 50s and 60s was not a lot of money, but i Put it in the offering plate. That's a great practice. But we need to recognize that God actually owns 100%. He owns all of it. Everything you've got, everything you are. It's all his. In fact, you don't even own your own life. Your body is not your own, and neither is your mind or your abilities or anything else. God blessed you with all of it, and all of it is to be used for his purposes. This is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not that the only time that belongs to him is the time you spend in this building. 
24 hours a day, seven days a week is his. It's not that the energies you invest in church activity are for his, but the energies you invest, you, you invest at work are for something else. It's, it's all his. So have you consciously turned everything back over to its rightful owner? And do you consciously seek to advance his purposes with all of his, of his possessions that he's entrusted to your stewardship? Now, one of his purposes is that you provide for your family. Absolutely. But we tend to treat it as though it's primarily to indulge our desires rather than it's primarily to advance his kingdom. Have you had that radical shift in your mindset where you literally can walk in your house and go, that's his couch, that's his chair, that's his desk, that's his bed, that's his electricity, that's his bank account, this calendar, these are his hours. It's all his. And I exist in this life to advance and serve his purposes in the world. Can you, in fact, let go of anything you've got if he has some other use for it? Or are you still enslaved to your possessions? Can you lose anything? Let me add, including your life, if God so calls on you to do. In light of all that, do you share God's passion for his glory and his heart for all nations? The tendency of, of all of us, because we're sinners, is to be self-absorbed, self-centered, and kind of parochial. But is it your passion, like it's God's passion, to see God receive the glory that's due his name from all the tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. Is the cry of your heart the cry of the psalmist, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. See, these are the basic mind shift changes that have to happen if we are to be mobilizable and deployable for the purpose of God. I belong to him. Everything I've got is actually his. All of it came to me as an act of his grace, I deserve absolute none of it. And my highest value is to see God receive the honor that's due his name. I value him more than I value my own advancement, reputation, comfort, convenience, or success. And that's not what really extraordinary, fanatical, kind of weird Christians do. You know, the weird ones who end up working for the International Mission Board. That's the biblical standard for all of us, for every believer in whatever setting we find ourselves. So do you see what you have, including your own life, as being for the advancement of God's global purposes? Are you willing to take a fresh look at your possessions, your spending patterns, your time use, your ambitions and goals, all in light of kingdom needs? Are you willing to use this Thanksgiving period of time as a chance not only to give thanks to God, but as it were, to return rightful control to whom it belongs. The psalmist's passion was to see God glorified and praised and honored by all the peoples of the earth. The difficulty is that now, probably some 3,000 years later, we're not even close to seeing that happen. We live in a world of about 7 billion people. Out of that 7 billion, fully 3 billion people have absolutely no access to the gospel whatsoever. That means they live in places or among people groups where there are no Christians, no Bibles, no churches, no missionaries, and most likely nobody's planning to do anything about it. They will be born, live, and die, and never know that there is a Savior who could, who could rescue them from the hell to which they are headed. 
And God's only plan for that, his only plan for rescuing them is that his people take the gospel to them. There is no plan B in the word of God. Now, just to give you an idea of of some of the scope of what that is, the year that I was born, there were only 2.7 billion people alive on earth, period. Now, there's more than that with no access to the gospel. And of the additional 4 billion some odd people, still most of them have never heard the gospel and certainly the vast majority of them are not saved. In fact, we estimate that about 4% of the world's population is evangelical Christian, and all the rest are justly under the wrath of God. And his solution is that we use our lives and the resources he has given us to take the good news to them. That's the world in which we live. And it happens that, speaking of blessings, that we are the most blessed people in the world in just about every category. Uh, Not only are we outrageous outrageously wealthier than most people in the world. And that includes those of us who feel like we're struggling. We're struggling by American standards. But by global standards, we are amazingly well off. But also, we have access to the gospel like nobody's business. Literally, we are the most evangelized 7% of the world's population living here in North America. Being ministered to by 90% of the full-time Christian workers in the world while people after people, place after place, has no access. For years, I worked in Central Asia. It's a part of the world that's right where you would assume it to be. Um, although we, 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 we jokingly used to refer to ourselves as Obscuristan, because the country's all in the word Stan, but nobody's ever heard of them. Um, and in that area, there's about 360 million people. And when we arrived on the field, in 1992, we estimate there were 4,000 Christians in that entire part of the world. 360 million people, 4,000 Christians, and 3,000 of those were in the country of Iran as a result of over 100 years of missionary activity there before the Ayatollah Khomeini kicked all the missionaries out. Now, by God's grace, today we know that there are at least 220,000 from 4,000 28 years ago, huge increase, that still means that Central Asia is 0.025% evangelical Christian. 0.025%. And of the 400 some odd languages, we're excited about the fact that we now have the Bible in six of them. As opposed to four when I got to the field. We have the New Testament in about a dozen more and portions in about 25 more than that. In light of all of that, in light of God's passion, in light of the purpose for which God has blessed us, what should you do? Just a few simple proposals here. First of all, let me urge you to give yourselves to prayer. Prayer is not second resort, not last resort. It's greatest resort. And prayer does two things. A, it is the channel through which God is often pleased to do extraordinary things, but B, perhaps more importantly, when God's got you on your knees, he's got you where he wants you. And God uses prayer to change you. So as you pray about giving thanks to God for all the many things he's blessed you with, pray as well for the nations that have not received the greatest blessing of all, which is the gospel. And if you don't know what to pray about, I would urge you to go to IMB, International Mission Board, imb.org slash prayer, pray, slash pray. And you'll have more prayer requests than you could possibly uh, do anything about. But let me urge you to make this a regular part of your life, 
that you are praying for those who do not know Jesus, that the gospel would reach them. And as you pray, also pray about what you need to be doing to help solve that. I think that prayer then will lead inevitably to a couple of other things. One of those is, I want to thank you for your generous giving and encourage you to give all the more. Um, One of the great things about working for the International Mission Board is that we do not raise our individual support. But we do sort of all raise support for all of us at the same time. Uh, Southern Baptists have an extraordinary um, missions funding mechanism in the cooperative program. And then we have this special offering, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And I am gazing at the, at the image of Lottie Moon right there on that screen. I said, yep, there she is. Um, about a four foot two high woman uh, who is extraordinary as an evangelist uh, and teacher in China. But the Lottie Moon Christmas offering provides over 50% of what the International Mission Board does. And to give you an idea of, of our needs, we, we right now have about 3,700 missionaries around the world. We estimate that just to take advantage of the opportunities that are standing in front of us right now, we need to increase that to about 4,200, a net gain of 500 missionaries. The problem is the amount we're taking in right now through cooperative program and Lottie Moon Christmas offering will pay for 3,700. So if we are to increase by 500, that means Lottie Moon must increase as well, along with cooperative program. And so let me encourage you as you move into the Christmas season to to realize just how glorious a thing the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is, and also to think about the fact, you know, this is actually Jesus' birthday, so here's how my family and I do it. Um, Now, what I'm about to tell you is a little risky because this is going to be my first Christmas with a grandson. And I am already feeling myself extraordinarily generous toward my grandson. Um, Nate will appreciate that. I think we can get him his first weight belt. Don't you think about two months old is about the right time to start that? Yeah. Um, But um, what we do is we figure out who we spent the most money on in the family. We up that amount and give it to Lottie Moon. So that, in fact, the biggest gift we give is to Jesus to advance the gospel. But let me simply urge you to the kind of generosity, again, that recognizes the blessings you have are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Express that in practical terms in the way that you give this Lottie Moon season. But beyond praying and giving, you know what we need most is people. We need people who are prepared and willing to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. And those people are sitting in the pews of our churches, like this one like you. And don't think, oh, well, you know, you couldn't possibly be talking about me. I'm not a preacher. Well, believe it or not, preachers are actually some of the least useful people in getting the gospel to unreached peoples. (laughs) Uh, The problem with preachers, and I fall in this category, is a government that doesn't want missionaries looks at my resume and sees, hmm, Undergraduate degree in religion, Master of Divinity, PhD in biblical hermeneutics. What do you have to offer us? On the other hand, if you go to those countries, which is where almost all of the unreached peoples are to be found, and you are a medical worker, or you are an engineer, or you are a businessman, or you are an athletics sports coach of some time, some of the most fun I ever had overseas, was actually coaching the sport of American football with Central Asian college students. Um, or you are 
Even a, we could even use lawyers, believe it or not. Um, we actually have some, some, some lawyers that have set up legal practices. The point is, folks like that can leverage the skills that God has given them to get into places where traditional missionaries cannot go and to be good disciples of Jesus there by sharing the gospel with the people around them. And what we have seen, without exception, is that every single place we have gone and stayed, learned the local language, which anyone can do, and built relationships, without fail, we have seen people come to Jesus. Without fail. And I'm talking about some of the places that, humanly speaking, you would think are the hardest in the world. So the issue of resistant peoples is not their resistance. The issue is our disobedience. The issue is we simply haven't gone. And that, and that disobedience can be anywhere from an issue of fear of danger to simply aversion to inconvenience. But for whatever reason, we have not gone. Let me also add that, this, that I'm talking both to young people and to old people. And so young people certainly need to be making good decisions about how they're going to spend their lives. But let me just say, for those of us whose hair is, is, now, is now white, um, Scripture says gray hair is a crown of glory. I obviously do not have a crown of glory, but I have a chin strap of glory, and I'll take that. But most of the world pays more attention and shows more respect to white hair than they do to other colors of hair, because most people recognize that there actually is no achievement to be found in being young. I mean, what do you achieve by being young? You know, those of us who are older, we survived this long. That's an accomplishment. And hopefully somewhere along the way, we've gained some wisdom. So that what I found working in the Muslim world is that this, 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 there used to be hair up here, and this used to be red. And when this turned white and this fell out, um, I can actually get away with far more in sharing the gospel in an Islamic context than I could before. We can be far bolder and get away with it because I'm older and age receives respect. It's American culture that's turned things on its head by not showing age the respect that the Bible itself does. So this is for young and for old. This is for preachers, but also for people with any professional experience. What we need to do is recognize again that all of our blessings, including our own lives, come from God, and they belong to him, and they are to be used for his purposes. So we need to turn the question on its head. Normally, our approach to missionary calling is, I will feel like I'm supposed to stay where I am unless I have a dream one night in which God says, go to country X, and the next day I go to church and someone pronounces a prophetic utterance over me, totally randomly saying I'm going to go to country X, and the day after that the clouds rearrange themselves, Zane, go to country X. That's what it takes to get us to go. Flip that on its head. We already have the command. The command is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you need to ask yourselves, Given the fact that the command is, is incumbent on me, and given the fact that I have been blessed enormously, and given the fact that there is so much need in other parts of the world, why shouldn't I go where I am needed more? And our default should be to go where we are needed more, unless God, in some providential way, makes it clear that we're to stay somewhere else. And so my prayer for this church is not only that it would be a praying church, and a generous church, and I'm grateful that you already are those things, but that this would be a massive sending church, that you would send your best and not be afraid to send your best, that you'd sort of graciously bug each other. What about you? Why aren't you going to the mission field? Why aren't you taking the gospel of those who have never heard it? 
that you would be engaged in each other's lives in such a way that it would be normal in this church for parents, yes, and grandparents, to encourage their children and grandchildren to go, for friends to encourage one another, for kids to encourage their parents to go, such that you just can't keep up with all the people you're sending out. And I can guarantee you that God will continue to refill those empty seats as you do so. So here's the challenge. First, if you are not a believer, if you are here in this room and you have never yourself embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you to do so. You, you are deserving of the wrath of God like the rest of us. But unlike the rest of us, you have no shield, no shelter in Jesus. Let me urge you to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to, reject, to repent of your sins and trust in him. For, in, for all the rest of us, let me urge you to evaluate what you've got, to consciously turn it back over to its rightful owner, to be grateful for all things, and to view all things you have as to be used for God's purposes and not your own. And let me also urge everyone here to ask God the simple question, why should I not take the gospel to those who have never heard it?